Nothing beats our stories. Welcome to the campfire. Join me, Ben Zoldan, and my guests as we explore all kinds of topics. This platform exists to inspire human spirit. Period, that's it. Nothing's off limits, and you're gonna hear from everybody. Thought leaders and non-thought leaders, CEOs and non-CEOs, authors and non-authors. What you're gonna really hear is conversations that matter, that get to the heart of the human condition, and stories that inspire. Today we have my good friend Dave Pistachio joining us, and I've known Dave for about 12 years. Dave was a former CEO of Cablevision Lightpath, and we're going to talk about culture, but we're going to do it in a different way. We're going to talk about building culture by changing and challenging our own status quo. And with that, I'm excited to have Dave join us. Before we get into the conversation, Dave, I want to share a couple things that were coming up for me. I had a, 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 a profound experience happen to me this weekend that I want to share. I'm talking to my, uh, my friend. I, I just got totally slapped around on Sunday. Like I've been going about the last, I don't know, six weeks or so with an element of, I, if I have to come clean, like buying my time. And I don't know if anybody else is with that. Almost like, okay, I'm going to make some shifts. I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to adjust. And we all know that feeling. But when we come back to normal, I could go back to my business. And y'all know this. I am in the gathering of people business, not the best racket to be in these days. So I'm like, okay, how can I make adjustments? How can I do this? And I feel like I, I, there's no doubt that I've been in denial. So I'm talking to my friend who's in the infectious disease business at the highest level, working with Nobel laureates. And we're having a conversation on Sunday. And I remember, and she says this in a conversation. She goes, Ben, what is it that you do for people? And I, had, I was like, oh. And whenever I'm asked that question, I really have to think about it. And I paused and I really thought about it. And I, some things came up for me because it was this honest conversation. I was like, well, I help people go from a certain state of a state to a new state, a state of being empathic, a state of self-reflection, a state of, um, of operating from the inside out, a state of let's just do it, a state of being an all, all in, a state of leaning into fears, a state of wanting to do good, like, right? And she's like, okay, Ben, how do you do it? And I'm like, you know how I do it. Like I'm in the workshop business. And she goes like this, you're gonna have to throw that playbook out. That handbook's gone. I'm like, what? She's like, we are not going back to the way things were. And my first response was like, yeah, I get it. We're not going back to the way things were. And then she goes, listen, no, we're not going back to the way things were. And she practically reprimanded me. And then I was like, holy shit. Um, and I was wondering, okay, what does that mean? And then, and then this is what kicked in. I was like, oh my gosh, what if we don't go back to the way things were anytime soon? And then I was like, what if we never do? Yeah. And what if I do yeah. what I do, but I have to do it completely different? And, I, and then the most, the, I, I was panicked. I started to literally hyperventilate and worry about, you know, everything came up for me. And then later on, I just sat with it. And as I sat with it, my big aha moment was like, what if I actually had to throw away my handbook, the way I do things, and literally start from scratch? And it reminded me of that scene in Apollo 13. Have you seen it? Yeah. And you know, halfway through this journey, and they can't get this, you know, the Apollo 13 back to Earth. You know, the, the leader kind of you know gets was Ed Harris 
gets everybody in a conference room. He's like, guys, this is where Apollo 13 is. This is Earth. We got to get it back to here. But everything we know to be true is now gone. We have to start from scratch. You have like seven hours. Get this thing back to Earth. But it's by no, nothing we've, you, have, you know, the handbook is gone. So I was like, what if I had to throw away my handbook? Like, what if I'm never in the gathering of people business again? And like in that moment, my biggest fear, and you all know this, I'm looking at the names here. You, a lot of you have been through my workshops. A whoosh came over me and I was like, that's pretty dope. What if I had to go figure out an entire new way? And then the next thing that happened really sort of blew my mind because what it was, was I live often in the state of wanting to challenge the status quo because of where I grew up, my injustices, things that have happened to me, observing the world. I was like, I like totally like disrupt the status quo. The status quo just appalls me. Like that's where I come from. But then my big aha moment was it wasn't about that. It was about, I need to challenge my own status quo. And then I got exhilarated. And then I was like, I'm going to my whiteboard, crazy ass whiteboard over here, right? And all my creative juices started to just surge and flow and flow. And what I realized is like, it is time we are going to be dinosaurs. If we're salespeople, if we're leaders, if we're software companies, if we're telecommunications company, if we are not challenging our status quo, nobody's going to be around in a couple of years. Like, period. Like, I don't think that's this hyperbole right now. We haven't even begun to comprehend the, the massive scale of the change we're about to embark on. And my friend who's in that business was like, Ben, this ain't going away anytime soon. There's some people on TV has done it who have done a really good job of confusing you, Ben. And she's in the know, right? We are not going back yeah. anytime soon. And the reason I share that is this is going to be about challenging our own status quo, because we all got to figure out like, Fuck the handbook that we got to do what we do. This thing gone. Come up with a yeah. new one, and that's my introduction to you, Dave. Because I think for you, for me, the way you come up and show up in my life is a guy who helps me challenge my status quo. Because you often talk me off the ledge, but also I experienced you in about a dozen years challenging your own status quo and how you run large, a large company. Um, so. I'm all fired up right now, um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's, you know what's funny is this. What jumped up into my head while you were talking, Ben, is this whole situation right now is the is that one point in time at the top of the, the arc of change that forced everybody to actually have to do something different, right? And um, it's uh, it's uh, it's at that moment of where you, where you have to where you have to change and you have no choice. Okay, but how about this one, okay? When we have to change, but here's the change. Ready for this one? The change is to ask ourselves deeper questions and stop asking the same like business model questions. Because what if, what if that's what the world nature is telling us to do? Why are companies doing the factory farming the way they do that? So we're gonna have COVID-20, then COVID-21, then COVID-22. Okay, how are energy companies destroying our planet and we keep buying that shit? Number three, how are companies out there doing mass layoffs when they have billions of dollars in the bank to protect the wealth of, and the inequality of wealth for their senior executives? Number four, Volkswagen cheats on their 
odometers, right? Number five, Wells Fargo has that massive corruption. And then we start asking ourselves not what we're doing, what we really get to and what I learned is we ask ourselves why we really do what we do. And I remember having that conversation with you yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it really interesting. I, um, you know, we, we, we worked through um, a bunch of years of, of working with trying to change the culture at, at my last company. And, um, you know, I was a real skeptic, as you remember, when, when we first started. I was like, this is, you know, it's just another, just another sales training program. Um, and I went through and, and watched, you know, a couple of, I attended a couple of workshops, not as a participant, but just as an observer. And I was like, holy crap, I've never seen a group of people who are also incredibly cynical, our sales guys, uh, when it comes to any of this new stuff, be converted so quickly and come out of it completely different people. And I was like, man, you know, I had spent uh, a bunch of money and a bunch of time and uh, trying to make the culture better, trying to get everybody to, to row in the same direction, trying to get everybody to care about each other. And I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars actually on consulting firms that came in with these different programs. At the end of the day, none of it worked. Um, and what worked was when we were able to get people to, to let down their guard and, and be truly who they were and, and, and be willing to just be vulnerable and, and connect with each other. And you know, it's the biggest, I think the biggest example I can think of back then, and the one that just kind of blew me away, and the one that's still the one I talk about when I, when I talk to other CEOs, is um, the hurricane story. You remember the hurricane story, Ben? Mm -hmm. So in, uh, well, I guess it was what, 2011, we had Hurricane Irene that hit, hit the Northeast and hit uh, Long Island. And we, you know, we're a fiber optic network operator. So we had fiber optic network all around the poles, power supplies, we had drops going to buildings. And, um, you know, hurricane is not a good thing. When you, when you run an outdoor network that's, that's aerial, it's not a good thing. And we knew that we were heading into this hurricane and we were going to have some serious damage to our network. We knew that customers were going to have no service and we were going to have to deal with all that. And so we, we went to the, to, the, to the team, the employees, and said, hey, we need everybody to volunteer to, you know, come and help us do all kinds of things, right? We need people on the phones. We need people power, babysitting power supplies. We need people, you know, doing all kinds of work. And what was interesting is I thought, I thought we had like a kind of a cool company culture at that point. I thought that it was already a kind of a, a family kind of environment. And what, what happened is I was, I was surprised and, and the senior management team was kind of really like bummed out because what we, what we were hearing was, yeah, you know what? I don't do phones. I don't do, I don't do that. You know, like I, I'm not going to volunteer for this other stuff. Let the, let the technical guys, let the engineers do that. Let the customer service people work a little bit longer. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of, we had a big struggle. In fact, we get to the point we actually had to say to some, some of the folks, like, you have to work. Like, we just cannot do it without you. But it was a struggle and people weren't feeling great about it. We weren't feeling great about it. 
And um, we got through it. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't, customers were not happy. We didn't do it anywhere near as well as we could have done and we should have done. But we got through it. Um, and over the next 12 months, we had already begun, just, we had just started with the program. We had just started bringing story leaders and connecting and, and all of the importance of, of, you know, empathy and humility and all that together. And we decided we were going to put it, the employees through it at a, like kind of a rapid pace. So we had, um, I think I had those 500 employees we put in, in, the, in the course of a year, we probably put about 200-ish through it, 250 people yeah, through and it. And you, you had me post up at the Holiday Inn in like- I know, I know. Only the best for you, Ben. Yeah, for like Only the best for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and did, and, and I, I didn't even think it had a restaurant, did it? No. I think like it had a cafeteria or something. Um, but anyway, we did this, we did this. We got like 200 people through it in, in the, over the course of the next year. and. In the fall of 2012, a year later, Superstorm Super Sandy hit, and it was coming in, and we were we were thinking, oh God, here we go again, trying to get people to do what we need them to do, and um, you know we were kind of prepared. We, we had learned some lessons that we were going to be better, but we weren't sure how the employees were going to react to it. And uh, honestly, I think if there's anything that describes what happens when a culture when, when you have a couple hundred people in any culture really kind of go through this this change it was this i mean we had people we had our finance team volunteering to be on the phone we had people whose houses were flooded coming in and, and actually sleeping in the building so that they could stay in the knock and work and not let any of their uh their their peers down. It wasn't about, at that point, it wasn't about, frankly, it wasn't about doing what was right for the customer, even though everybody was happy to do what was right for the customer. It was about, hey, if, if my peers and my colleagues are going to be here, I'm going to be here too. I'm not going to let them do the work. I'm going to be here and help. And so we had, we had people making outbound phone calls. We had people sitting at power supplies. We had people out in the field that had never been out in the field before. And and the way they went about it was just incredible. That you know, it's just like we're doing this. We don't care. We're going to do this, and it's not about it's not about getting overtime pay. Or it's not about any of this other stuff. It's about just making sure that we're here for each other and we do the right thing because we're a family and we're connected and we care about each other. And you know, I think um, I that was the thing that that kind of for me was the the the, the pinnacle, the moment where things changed in the culture and evolved forward from there, we put another couple of 300 people through it. But man, that was like a really visible change. And um, yeah, we had customers calling in and ordering new service in the middle of the hurricane because of the way we responded and because of the way our employees were. So anyway, just, you know. Well, a, if we get to the heart of it, so last week um, I had... Colonel John O'Grady on, and he you know, decorated two-time gold star recipient, you know, leading large multi-thousand people, or, you know, organization in the in the army in combat, um, and he started his career off at West Point. And um, you didn't, your origins didn't start off that way. 
<laughs> but but I and I and I want to go there because your story matters here because this is a story. This is a session on like everybody challenging their own status quo. So like, if that's the end, you know, Super Storm Sandy is the end of this narrative, right? Where you've come to your own awareness. Like, take us back to the beginning. Oh, really? <laughs> um, oh God, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, look, um, let's see. My first brilliant decision when I was old enough to think for myself was to drop out of high school in May of my senior year before graduating. And, uh, and my parents are really, really happy about that. And, you know, looking back, I was like, I, I just can't imagine that I actually did it. Um, but, you know, you do what you do and in the moment you do it. I, di I didn't love school and I didn't, I felt like I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I was good at fixing stuff. So I figured I could do something in the trades. Uh, and I started climbing telephone poles. And, you know, ever since I was a little kid, you know, in, in my, in my advanced age, back then you didn't, you didn't go get a new bicycle if your bicycle broke. You didn't go get a new car if your car broke. You fixed it. You had to learn how to fix it. And you had to, you had to get through with what you had. And, um, you know, I, I learned how to climb telephone poles. Um, I spent, you know, a whole afternoon in the hospital after sliding down one. But eventually I got it right. And I learned how to, you know, work on you know, telecom stuff. I learned how to work with people. Um, and, you know, I, I decided to just keep working and I didn't think about where I was going. I had no plan, no plan whatsoever. Um, I would just keep working. I would keep doing more. And if I saw something that needed to be done or fixed, I would take it on because I love fixing things. And, you know, that works for a long time and, and you can, you can get really good in business by being a fixer. You can be, you know, somebody who turns around companies and turns around departments. And that's, that's kind of what I got to. Um, and I was, I was really good at that part of it. But what I sucked at, honestly, was the flip side of that. What I sucked at was praising people and, and giving, you know, kudos and, and patting people on the back. Because um, in my mind, everything was broken until you, you know, you fixed 100%, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think... Part of the issue for me was that I didn't realize how, how much I was focused on the broken stuff and how much I thought I, I could fix anything and everything. And um, I had, uh, you know, I had a, a marriage that wasn't great and a wife that had mental illness. And, you know, I said, oh, I could fix that too. And, and you know what, I, I tried for a bunch of years and it, it you know, it just didn't work. I, you know, you, you get to a point where you finally, finally realize after a lot of pain that you cannot fix everything. Um, and you're, you're powerless and that you need other people and you need, you need to have other people in your life. You have, to, you have to have other people who have your back. You need other people to help get things done because you can't do it all. Um, and, you know, I, I wound up at... Um, I wound up in Cablevision, did a lot of work in different fields. I was CIO in charge of a big thousand person IT shop uh, for a bunch of years. And then when I went to Lightpath, um, you know, I, I still kind of, I, I knew that 
that I was, you know, still a fixer and I knew that I had to also do the other, the other part of it. But man, you know, the entire time, first few years of Life Path, one of the biggest challenges for me was this, this idea of, um, of imposter syndrome. You know what that is, Ben, right? Like, here I am, no high school diploma. Well, I got a GED, no college degree. Never, I went to college for a couple of semesters, never got a degree. And I wind up somehow, through the grace of God and crazy luck, running this company. Um, and I, would, I was literally in fear almost every day of like somebody finding out. They're gonna find out that I don't have a degree. They're gonna find out that I'm gonna be embarrassed and they're gonna get rid of me. And I remember, I remember I went to lunch with some sales guys and a few of our big, big customers um, up in the Bronx on Arthur Avenue. And sitting around the table at lunch, there's about seven of us. And somehow they started talking about their alma maters, which college they went to. And then it started to go around the table. And somebody talked about theirs. And they, where'd you go? Somebody talked about theirs. Where'd you go? And I'm sitting there terrified that it's going to get to me. And in front of some of my biggest customers and some of my employees who I had only known a short time, I would have to say, I don't have a college degree. And it freaked me out. Um, and, you know, I, what, what, what I came to realize, especially after going through the work that we went through and, and attending a workshop myself fully on as a, as a participant, is that at the end of that, I was okay letting that out. I was okay letting all of it out. I didn't care anymore. In fact, some would say it makes the story a better story, but. So like up to, up until that point, did you let people into your story and, and uh, did people know that you were this college dropout, no college degree? Nope. You know, it's a lot of things, a lot of things I didn't let people know. Okay, well, let them, so, you know, let's take this back to challenging our own status quo, because I feel like it's so easy to, to hide behind as I was challenging the status quo, if the status quo is an external thing, what if it is an internal thing, it, you know, maybe we have bigger, bigger potential than we than we think. Because here's something I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but you guys had at Lightpath a three, a three story building. Yeah, a huge three story building. And I was working essentially when I would come out there on the first floor, but you see my air quotes, the first floor, everybody on the first and second floor, you know what they used to say? Oh, the third floor. Oh, the third floor. And the third floor used to refer to those big, fat, juicy offices that the executives had on the third floor. There was such a division. I don't know if you guys knew it. So like, I didn't know you at the time. In fact, it was the, your sales VP or sales leader had brought me in to work with this, what, like 130 person sales organization. And it wasn't until we were doing work for a few months that you pulled me aside and said, Ben, we, maybe we need to, like, this is some pretty cool stuff. Maybe we need to look at other areas of the company. But you would pop your head in and pop out and then pop your head in. And I was like, oh man, this guy's too busy for this. He's too good. But it makes sense. He's on the third floor. But I'm wondering if that like third floor is like symbolic of this mentality that this, this, uh, that a lot of leaders had, um, it sounds like you had it. Or I felt like, honestly, what I, what I felt, you know, I made a 
a bunch of mistakes, but one of the biggest ones when it comes to challenging my own status quo was you can't get cultural change to happen without kind of leading it. Like I thought I could just hire some consultants and have them come in and they would fix this stuff for me and I wouldn't have to get involved. And I, I, did, I tried that a couple of times and, and, and spent a lot of money. And I think the thing that I, the, the real challenge for me was getting out of that office, walking around, sitting in workshops with people, having conversations with people in the corridor, going and having breakfast with people every couple of weeks. We had, you know, a, breakfast, a small breakfast with 10 people. And, you know, I would, I would be able to finally tell my story and, and hear their stories. And, and the minute you leave the third floor and you went down into the, into the, the trenches, not that they were so horrible, um, it, it does change the way everything happens. And, and, and I know I was one of those people that just thought I could sit back and let somebody else do the work. If we really net this thing out, walking down to the first floor ain't that hard. Um, doing things is not as hard as we think. Usually what comes first, I've come to learn, is changing our own paradigms. Like something has to shift in how I view what my place is in the world. So I'm curious if I can ask you, was there a shift in how you viewed the, your role, your place, your view of the world, your view of business? What was the shift from and what did it get to? I was running this company for a bunch of years. I think it was, I don't know, five years. And I ran it for 12 years all told. But after, after about five years, you know, you get into this rut where um, you know, I started thinking about like, what was my, what was my purpose in life? I think it was my mid, my midlife crisis, you know, wanted, I also wanted a sports car and a motorcycle or something, but you, know, you start thinking about like, what is my, you know, I have fewer years left in my life than I, than I have behind me. And, um, you know, what, what is my purpose? And I, you know, I was, Pretty successful. Everything was going fine. The business was growing every single year. It wasn't like it was. It wasn't like it was a mess, and I was failing. And you know, I felt pretty good about that. The company was happy with what I was doing, and the board. And but you know, I didn't feel really like connected to, I guess, the mission anymore. I started asking questions like, you know, why do I do this? What's what am I, when, my, when I'm gone from this earth, what's my legacy going to be? That I made some money for some shareholders? That I made, that I made you know, the board members, you know, happy? Or that I, that I made people rich? Um, or that I earned money for myself? Um, you know, I, I was thinking about a lot of stuff. And in fact, at the same time, frankly, my marriage was going through turmoil. And there was all kinds of other stuff going on in my life. But, but this was really what... It's one of the things I was most focused on. And, you know, I think going through the hurricane, um, the two hurricanes, and realizing that every person, especially during Sandy, people were actually coming in and, and doing work, and we started to get to know them. We had gotten to know them through the workshops. I realized that every person that was working for the company was able to pay their bills, have a house, have food on the table, send their kids to school, 
And every one of them had their own story. And I learned a lot of them as people were talking about how their house was destroyed or their family was messed up or they, they lost a car or whatever it might have been through the hurricane. I think I came out of that hurricane thing realizing that, no, what, what I was doing was not necessarily just making money for all that, you know, the, the shareholders and all that stuff. It was really kind of stewarding the company so that it could continue to support 500 families and maybe 500 more after those and, into, and on into the future. And I started, it changed the way I thought about the business. It changed the way I thought about the company. It changed the way I thought about business in general. You and I had a, you and I had a conversation, Ben. I think at one point about you know do what's right. Don't you know? Let's not worry about how much it costs to do this. Let's not worry about how much you know and whether we can afford to do it because we need to have a bottom line number. Let's just do what's right. And if you do what's right for the employees, they'll do what's right for the customers, and the bottom line will come. And that that really was the beginning of a different perspective on how to how to you know really think about business. Right. And you know, it's crazy when I think about, um, you know, someone might say, okay, Ben, you're naive or, you know, you don't get it. When I say something like, well, do we treat business um, like we would family? Like yeah. we don't say, hey, honey, you got a C today on your math test. We're going to have to put you on a performance plan or we're going to have to do mass layoffs around here. Like we actually, we actually literally do the opposite with our loved ones. We double down on them. Like I remember when, you know, you know, my oldest daughter Zoe and she was having a hard time as a junior in high school. I like, I'll never forget this. And she was struggling and it was uh, the beginning of the winter um, part of her school year. And I was like, you know something, I'm going online right now. We're buying tickets to Hawaii and we're, we're doubling down on family. Like we're gonna go, we're gonna go for two weeks. It was the wrong time, it was the wrong ROI. And somebody would say, well, that's naive because you have to manage the ROI and the spreadsheets. Well, maybe people aren't spreadsheets because, you know, we, 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 when we know people's stories and, and it's, it's the opposite of managing like the spreadsheets. And, and here's why. Tell me what the ROI and where on what column or line item that the effects of, of what we did together when you had Superstorm Sandy Tell me how that shows up on a spreadsheet on, and in what column. And I think what we began to do is create this paradigm in business that we're managing that and we're losing this other thing. We're managing literally rows and columns. And, it, but, and, and here's why it's buffoonish. It's like Simon Sinek's big thing right now is the infinite game. And I'm really... I. I've always really, his message has always resonated with me for years ago with the, with the why and I vote, you know, but now this idea of the infinite game that we've acquired this business handbook, that's about um, the finite game, you win or lose. But in family, there's no win or lose. In love, there's no win or lose. In relationship, there's no win or lose. But yet we have this competitive, you know, we're gonna beat the competition by whose rules and whose time frame? Our shareholders time frame. And it sounds to me like, as I'm listening to you, there's a difference between managing that spreadsheet and, oh, by the way, the magic thing, the magical thing happened when we operate from a different place. And, and that's the paradigm I have to remind myself as, a, as I'm running my own P&L. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I just remember I went to, I, be, I belong to this 
group of CEOs, right? Mid-market CEOs. I went to the, a conference where there's like 200 of us sitting around. And for the, I, I've been going for a number of years, but when I went again two years ago, I think it was, and, and I told you when I came back, that what was kind of um, different was that 70% of the CEOs that were sitting around finally got to this place where they started to say, no, the, like the, the biggest challenge that we're dealing with today in our companies has to do with people and culture and how do you make people happy and engage them and keep them and make them productive. And, you know, I, I didn't hear that the year before, the year before that, the year before that, it was about, you know, getting financing and getting, you know, working with private equity guys. Um, but it's exactly what's happening I think business is finally coming around that it's not about process. It's not about technology. It's not about any of that shit. It's yeah. about people and connection and the power of having many, um, many people working together to get something done. Right. On, on that point, guys, I'm going to try and loop in some questions because we have a couple hands raised. So I think Vlad is on. I'm bringing on Vlad. I think he's a former employee or he works. Yeah. Dave. Hey, Vlad. What's going on, Dave? How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm all right, man. Hanging in. Ben, how are you, man? Good. It's good to see your face. You cool. guys were talking about some valuable stuff, man, from um, Light Path days, you know, and it kind of was just bringing me back into my memory bank, man, like wild times. Um, yeah. A lot of the stuff that you were saying, Ben, was very true. I remember when we started the uh, employee experience group, like everybody had like this fear of Dave Pistachio. And it was one of those things that nobody could ever make sense of, you know? Um, I remember I had just had the twins and like, you know, Dave would ask me, you know, how are the twins doing and things like that with my wife. And um, people are like, yeah, like, you actually approached them, you talked to them, and I'm just like. <laughs> and you know what? Part of it is like when you have a title, like our like my title at the time, it's just intimidating to people. I don't, you know, and then you know me, I'm not a, I'm a regular guy, Jesus. Yeah, I'm not so sure if it was just the title because as crazy as it sounds, I feel like a lot of the, older people that used to be there, for lack of a better term, um, sometimes like their perception of, you know, the former organizations that they used to work for and how management was kind of structured, they kind of would slowly but surely like influence people in a negative way of what the perception of upper management is, you know? So it was kind of like, yeah, this guy Dave came in and he just started cleaning house and this person was gone and that person was gone. So I feel like that perception of you superseded you almost, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So when we, when we started the um, employee experience group, I thought that was great, you know, when we started doing the, uh, you know, the breakfast with the troops and stuff like that, kind of just giving people a perspective of understanding that you're just a regular guy, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, well, yeah, it was, it was definitely- Well, I had, to work, I had to work at being a regular guy from Ben's, from <laughs> well, Ben's comment about being on the third floor and right. not coming down enough, yeah. so. Yeah. But you know, it's, you know, it's weird. I remember Vlad a, uh, a number of years ago, and this was after like my story leader's journey began, if I'm going to come clean with it. It's like, sometimes, what do people say? We have, a, we have blinders on to like how we really come across to people. And I remember yeah. an exercise somebody gave me years ago was go to the people you love and just ask them for, you know, you have permission. Tell me, what are all the things that I do to make you feel uncomfortable? So the people I went to were first my daughters. I even had a conversation with my parents and my, you know, and I have siblings, you know, so the people, um, and 
I know it's blind spots that people say we all have our blind spots. Yeah. So I don't know, Dave, if it was your job title, you know, and I feel like we can easily hide behind that. Yeah. Because um, if it's not a job title, it's something else. And what I remember when I really created a, and, and really asked people, I said, look at non-judgmental, I'm going to be here. I'm, I'm not going to fire back here. I'll just listen. What are the things I do that make you feel uncomfortable about me that you would like me to work on? I got stuff. It was like the floodgates opened. And if you took that list, I would have thought to myself, I'm the world's worst human being. Like I suck because I got things like at the time you don't listen. You're so opinionated. Like you stand up. I remember this with my daughter. Oh, my youngest daughter is tiny. She's so petite, you know, and, and I never knew this Vlad. She used to say, dad, like you, you tower over me. Because when I get going, I work, I stand up, my blood's flowing, I'm all, get all my juices going, and I get off on these rants. I get bonkers, but I don't know how I'm coming across the people. And I used to create fear. Like, she used to be, like, scared. And it's heartbreaking to hear these things. But I guess what the reason that came up for me just now is we don't know what our blind spots are. And maybe we all got to, again, challenge our own status quo. What is it that, you know, how do we look at our place in the world and start to change us? The old cliche, you know, the old thing, you know, you know, be the change you imagine, but let's own that shit. Dave used to scare me. Um, and now Vlad, the craziest thing is when I have something coming up that comes up for me where I'm stuck, guess who's one of my core handful of people that I call. Looks like Dave. Yeah. My man, Dave. And, uh, That's Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I think as you go through life, you, you anyway, you, you, you start to be more self-aware and more introspective, I think for most people. And, um, you know, I, I look back on my days at Light Path and it wasn't all great. I wasn't, I wasn't the smartest guy for sure. I wasn't the best leader for sure. Um, I would micromanage people. I would do all kinds of dysfunctional things that every human does, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I think that the, the issue was for me that we, going through what I went through, going through what, what we went to, through together, I was able to kind of really step back and say, holy shit, you're not so great. Um, let's, uh, try to work on that. So I, I still think there's, you know, everybody has their stuff that they do um, to this day, but you're right. It's, it's, you have to, you have to look at yourself and challenge your own status quo. Hey, Graham. Hey guys. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Um, so I just had a question. One of the things that Dave, you said you had done as a ritual in, um, in your previous company was that you had uh, breakfasts or meals or, uh, some ritualized uh, meetings with people from different departments. Um, obviously, that's important for a CEO. And, you know, I, I like to get to know people from different departments because it fits some purposes that I'm uh, involved in as well. But sometimes I find it to be, it's, I actually really enjoy it and it really energizes me. But I find sometimes it's like, it's, I feel like almost I'm lacking a direction in how to approach it. Like, do I talk to this department or this many people? And like, you don't have unlimited time to be doing this either every week yeah. right so i don't know if you could just give like a general comment on like how you approached who exactly to talk to and how much time to spend talking to them 
actually, we, I was uh, um, pretty adamant that it should not be too like orchestrated. Like, so mm -hmm. to be honest, if I had 10 people in the room or, you know, seven to 10 people we usually had having breakfast, literally we had somebody bring in some eggs and bagels and whatever in a conference room. And every couple of weeks was a different group of people. Some of them were brand new employees that had been with us a week. Some of them had been with us for 20 years. Some were engineering guys, some were salespeople, some were admins. And, you know, I think it, it, what came out of it is there was no purpose. Like if I was meeting with engineers as a group, it might feel to them like I'm, I have some engineering agenda in my head. I, I went into these meetings and frankly, the first thing I did was tell them my story of my background and how, you know, I was a college, not a college graduate, uh, high school dropout and talk about, you know, some of the stupider things that I've done, but it really, you know, it, it just took off after that and people felt like just really connected and, and so willing to talk about their own stuff. You know, people talking about how they, yeah, they get a college degree, but it's in like, you know, food prep and now they're an engineer in a fiber company. So I think, I think part of what I've learned and, and Ben, you can comment on this too, is like, when you go into these things and try to structure it too much, it, it doesn't feel as authentic as if you just go in and say, look, we're just going to have a conversation and I'm going to just kind of yeah. let it rip. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. I don't know. Can I share something that just came up with me for me, Graham? Sure. About three, four years ago, I got to know Captain Bob Heckman, who was, uh, he actually was a commanding officer of a United States destroyer, nuclear destroyer. And we were talking about business and silos, and I was talking about my work, and he was like, you think, you think corporations have an issue with silos? Imagine being on a 400-person battleship in tight quarters, and you have, you know, um, operations, safety, um, weapons department, nuclear, and you know, enter all of these departments. And he goes, you can't have any silos when you have people like trying to operate at, at that at that level. And he goes, Ben, you know what you need? And he goes like this to me. He goes, secrets. He goes, on a ship you could have no secrets because secrets is the basis of trust. And Dave, I'm thinking about your background and your story and what it would be like if at the highest levels where leadership keeps their secrets. Right, because now you're just creating an environment where everybody else is going to keep their secrets. You don't know this about me. Um, uh, I don't talk politics. I don't talk about my education because I'm a high school dropout. Like we don't know, right? Yeah. So he talked about this this um, ritual they had on the ship, and he goes, "Ben, it's the school of the ship." I'm like, "What is that?" He goes, "Well, at meal time, we sit and have meals, but you're not allowed to meet with anybody at your ranking. So a commanding officer." had to you know, sit with an enlisted 21 year old private, right? And if you're in weapons, you had to sit with somebody from operations, you know? So it was this, because Ben, that's the price of admission. That's the easy part. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, the whole idea is we would always have to go first. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we would have to go first and share our story because then you're giving people permission to share back. And that's how you foster real culture where there's no secrets on the ship. And then he told me, Graham, the most incredible story. He goes, Ben, ben let me give you a, an example. I'm like, okay. He goes, well, you know, in, um, in peacetime, we, all we do is prep, prep, prep. So if we're ever at war, we have to be wartime ready. 
and we are docked off of San Diego and we are testing this weapon system. So we would load it all up for a couple of days. We would, you know, drive the ship out a couple hundred miles off of San Diego and shoot up one of our missiles to a drone to make sure, you know, the missile systems work. He goes, okay, so we do it. Everything's testing fine. We go out there, shoot the missile, hit go. And there goes the drone, self-destructs. He's like, this is bad, right? Cost $250,000 just for the missile, but we have to take the whole ship now back to San Diego, see, check it all, get all the smart people, engineers, fix it, right? Next day, boom, fix it all. All the specs are good. They go back out. Drone goes up, they fire the missile systems, self-destructs. Now this is really bad. This is costing you and me, well, not you, you're Canadian, but us, <laughs> taxpayers, millions of dollars, but this, this missile system's not working. Now they have to get the manufacturer from civilian, from you know whatever the systems were, and they have the smartest people in the room. They have all the engineers, all the officers, everybody, all hands on deck, right? Nobody could figure out this problem, right? But he goes, Ben, we had a 19-year-old enlisted guy who actually said the actual problem that they had overlooked was that the codes they were putting into the system weren't matching up to the codes from the manufacturer of these weapons because the model year was off by one digit. He goes, Ben, you know why I told that story? And I'm like, I don't know where he's going with this thing. He goes, the reason I tell that story is to be able to foster an environment where a 19-year-old enlisted person feels that they have the courage to speak up. Yeah. And that's the net result of no secrets on a ship. And he drew a direct line correlating, maybe not even correlating, this is a causational thing, right? From no secrets all the way to a 19-year-old feeling empowered. So I, I find going and having the meals is the price of admission, but the leaders going first and sharing their stories is the magic. Yeah, 100%, that has to happen. I mean, that's what leading is about, leading from the front, not pushing from the back, right? All right, let's get Tammy on. Tammy, hello, there you are. Hey, Tammy, how's it going? Um, so uh, Dave, thanks so much for, uh, for what you've been sharing. It's been phenomenal to hear you. And I was really struck by the very end. Um, you talked about being in rooms with CEOs where the majority of them were starting to understand that uh, people and culture uh, were really the drivers of their success. But now we are in a pandemic. 30 million people are unemployed. Uh, businesses are laying off people left and right. Um, it's getting existential out here. Um, you know, people are, uh, businesses are struggling for their survival. And I wonder if you, uh, you know, given your experience um, across a broad set of macro uh, and, mi and, and micro situations, um, do you see us sort of sliding back to um, kind of that focus on the typical business drivers since, you know, so many people are now, so many businesses are now, you know, kind of faced with some, some existential issues? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, at least in the companies that I've been interacting with over the past year um, or two, I have not seen that slip back into let's, let's go back and worry about the finances. And to the degree that, look, every company has to worry about whether they have enough cash to pay the bills, right? Every, just like every family has to. But one of the things that I've seen happen in real life this, this, during this COVID thing is that the companies are doing 
incredible things to help their employees get through this. And it's almost like, like they, there's an, they feel a, a much bigger obligation today than I think they would have. If, if this happened in the eighties, forget it, right? This happened even in the nineties, forget it. They, they would have been just laying off people like crazy. And there's still, there's still companies that have to lay off people, but I hear more about companies that furlough people and bring them back. I hear more about companies that, um, where the employees, in fact, one of the companies I'm involved with, the employees, when they heard there had to be some limited layoffs, um, started asking questions like, well, can we work less hours? Can we, can we all share and keep the people on the payroll? And, and you know, I think culture and, and the importance of how, impo the importance of people in the organization and how important that is to the success of the organization and the success of performance of organizations, even financial success, is much more well understood today than it's ever been. I think, it's, I think it needs to get better and better. But I don't see us, I, I frankly don't see us going backwards. I, I feel like the one thing that's come out of this COVID-19 thing entirely is the fact that human beings need to be together, need to be connected, need to be, you know, um, uh, and empathic and and uh, I, I feel like that's the big learning out of this thing and, and it, it's not going back the way it was. Well Dave isn't this is about what do we value first as your priority is it our people or is it shareholders and, right. and our bottom line because those are two different things right and you know I mean here's the thing if you look at okay so I, you know everybody knows that I publicly am trying to shine a light on the companies doing it right and the companies who I think are, are missing on this one, right? And the companies that are doing it right, salesforce.com. Okay, so they have a lot of cash in the bank, but they said, oh, we're gonna take a no layoff pledge. Palo Alto Networks, no layoff pledge. And a pledge means I'm all in. And then there was that company, Bird. They left, lay out, laid off 400 people in one shot because they needed to, you know, they, they had all their reasons, right? But who are you putting first? Because if you're putting people first, you know, what is, what is 400 employees for the next year? A couple million bucks? Well, if your evaluation is $2 billion, yeah. I'm sorry. What are you protecting? The shareholders and those, you know, and Silicon Valley, you know, billionaires or our laborers, the people doing the work. And let's put our fucking money where our mouth is. And if we do that, put people first, then, then this, it's, it's, I, I just feel it's a matter of priority. Um, yeah. So, and, and, and Tyler, I know you had, you had one you wanted to ask Dave here. Like when I was hearing about the hurricane story and you're talking about self-reflection, like the first time the hurricane happened, we self-reflected and then we, we knew things had to change. And then things in your personal life, you're like, I can't just be a fixer in every medium in life. Like it just doesn't work. And like, it sounded like you had moments of self-reflection where you really had to dig deep and think about it. I mean, did that come hard? Did you have to initiate it yourself? Did it come naturally? Was it over a long period of time? Like, how did you do that for a company as well as yourself? Uh, well, it didn't come naturally. <laughs> it's hard. You know, it's hard. It's, it's, I guess it's, it's hard to look at your flaws, right? I mean, to Ben's point, like you ask people, what what you could do better or what you could do differently or where where you needed to improve and you you get it the stuff that you get is not easy to hear and it's not easy to hear even if you're you know if you're running a company and after the first hurricane we we did self-reflection about what we succeeded at where we didn't succeed knowing the answer 
having doing the self-reflection and doing the hard work is worth it when you come out the other end with this better understanding of yourself and a better like way to connect with with other people and you know ben and i talk about this do, do one do one thing one hard thing a day one scary thing every day um that is that is the kind of stuff that you have to do to come out the other end and feel good about it you know dave you know, what's interesting is that that little exercise do one thing scary every single day usually what we find is it's usually some self-work like because if, yeah. if it's scary it ain't going to be this external thing um thanks tyler for that i, I you know i want to share this as as we as we close here and dave i'll give you some final words but here is my biggest lesson on in business that i got which was about seven eight years ago after we started this work you called me up one day he said ben i gotta talk about this i i, I think i want to bring your your platform into my entire company and i was like what do you mean and you're like literally everybody every single employee and you were the first person to take me out of sales into leadership into marketing into engineering support i mean everybody in your company and i got scared i think i told you this i got scared but here's why i got scared because I had that, that imposter syndrome. Am I qualified to go speak to a group of marketers? Am I qualified to go speak to a bunch of engineers who have an engineering degree or leaders or you know, all of these other people? So I was scared. So I think what flew out of my mouth literally in that moment was I said this to you, Dave. It's like one of those times where you say something, you want to suck those words back in because you were, you were basically a customer at that point. Okay. I said, Dave, are you sure you want to spend that much money with me? <laughs> oh, shit. Suck those words back in. Yeah. Good, good sales job, Ben. Right. And, uh, and it wasn't a shtick. It just came out. It flew out of my mouth. And then I remember you kind of paused and your voice got kind of lower. And you said this to me, and I'll never forget it. You said, Ben, I'm watching what goes down and people are just happier. And you said, if my people are just happier, our customers will just be happier. And if that happens and everybody's happier, the bottom line will take care of itself. And I think, you know, that's such an easy thing to overlook and we make everything we do so hard. But if we start with that as like our core belief system, then everything will fall into place. Right. And I feel like that's a paradigm shift that's worth sharing with the world. So thank you for that, Dave. Um, it's stuck with me for as long as I've known you. Um, with that, do you have any closing words for the campfire? I would say there's light at the end of the tunnel, not just of this COVID thing, but I think this is going to highlight how important culture and challenging the status quo is. And, and I think that there's no going back to Ben, you know, you started this Ben by saying like, this is changing us forever. We're not, there's no going back. There's no going back. And I feel like in a lot of ways, it's a good thing. There's no going back. Amen. So it's a good thing. We're never going back, throw out the handbook and rewrite a new handbook. And, uh, I don't know. That's a, it's an inspiring thing. Get those creative juices flowing. So, um, Dave, Dave, thanks. You guys, thanks for joining. We'll be back on on Thursday at a 11 o'clock Pacific. And uh, you can always email me at Bennett at Story Leaders. And I'll see you guys Thursday.